Mac Power Users, Episode 97, Computer Repair and Recycling, with iFixit's Kyle Weens. Welcome back to another Mac Power Users episode. Today we're going to be talking to Kyle Weens from iFixit about responsible computer repair and recycling. But before we do that, we had a little bit of housekeeping to talk about. So, uh, number one item on the agenda, Katie, is episode 100, which is coming up. Yes, I, this is coming up. This is episode 97, so we're only a couple of weeks away. So um, after much begging and pleading with David, I finally convinced him that episode 100 is going to be live, right? Right. So we're going we're gonna to have someone helping us out to uh, cover the phones and uh, bringing in a bunch of guests, yeah. which are some of our, our favorite listeners who've written in with some great ideas. All right. uh, we're going to have announcements going out to those listeners in the next few days So after the show comes out. So, you know, Watch your inboxes. Yeah, keep an eye open. And we've got to, we're going to look like we're going to do it. We've got a set time now, don't we? We do. The time is set. So mark your calendars. Saturday, August 25th. It's at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. That would be 10 a.m. Pacific? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know what other times that is around the world, so check. Your mileage may vary. Yeah. We're hopefully, we're not going to blow up 5x5 five five in the process, but we're going to do a live show. So it's going to be at 5x5.tv slash live. We're going to be broadcasting it live. And and what we're going to do is we're, we're going to have a, a handful of live workflow guests, and the actual show will come out in the podcast feed on schedule that following Monday, the 27th. And uh, we'll see how this goes. This is uncharted territory for us. You know, may, maybe we'll sneak one or two practice live shows that we won't tell anybody about in between now and then. Yeah, well, it can't be that hard. Yeah. And then uh, we've got one other thing. Uh, we've got a lot of email over the last couple of years, people saying, hey, I would really like a transcript of your show. And, you know, everybody's asking about it. And we've explored it on a couple levels. And, you know, there's robot transcription services out there that the tests we've done have been pretty, pretty horrendous. Yeah. And, you know, we looked at other options. And, and ultimately, it seems to me that if we were going to do a transcript of the show, we'd have to do it with a human transcribing the show. And that's anywhere between an hour and two hours of audio with up to, you know, three people. Let's be realistic. It's closer to two hours these days. Yeah. So it's going to be kind of expensive. So we decided the best way to figure it out is to do a poll. So if, if you are interested in this, it'd be $25 a year and you would get 50 some transcripts, uh, Go to the poll and click yes. You know, and we don't really care if you click no. We just want to know how many people are actually interested in it before and, we explore it further. And and I would say I want you to be more than interested because David and I are looking at putting out some pretty significant upfront costs out of our own pockets to start this up. So if if you're clicking yes, and we're really looking at this poll to get a gauge of people who are really going to do this. This is not a Kickstarter. We're not asking you to put in a credit card or commit to anything. It's just kind of an on your honor thing. Do you want Mac Power users transcripts? Would you commit to paying $25 or so a year to get a year's worth of transcripts? And if enough people are going to do it, then we're going to take the steps to make that happen and figure out the back end and actually how we do it. So we're kind of backing into this. Uh, so we're we're really depending on if you click yes in that poll, that's a number that that we're going to base the finances off of and figure out whether this is something that's really realistic. 
And I put a couple of different options on the poll. You know, is this something that you would do yearly or monthly? Or We're looking at a couple of different options, but basically the gist of it, it would probably be a transcript that would come out seven to ten days after the show is posted, and it would probably come to you by email. We've looked at a couple of different ways to do it. If you've got comments, there's a there's a spot in there for comments too. So, you know, we're just trying to get some feedback and some information to gauge interest at this point. So if a lot of people have said they want it, and now it's time to see whether you're willing to put your money where your mouth is. And, and frankly, I'm really not interested in doing it on a month-to-month basis because it's going to be a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. Um, I, just would, I think if you're into it, we're going to do it for like a year, and then maybe next year we'll do it again if there's enough people interested in it. But you know, I'd like to build this as something that doesn't require a ton of work by us. Yeah. And automatically gets you a transcript. So let us know. I mean, I don't know if the interest level is high enough. I know the people who are writing about it are passionate about it. I just don't know if there's enough of those people. So we'll find out. So let's get on with the show. We've got Kyle Weens with us today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. You know, we met at Macworld, I, I think it was two years ago. And uh, you guys were doing that really cool thing where people would bring up broken stuff and you'd fix it live. That yeah, was very that cool. was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's just like, okay, you got something broken. Let me fix it. And and, uh, and very brave. Yeah, yeah, that was probably the most, uh, I guess, challenging live talk that we've given. Where we just have random people in the audience. We had no idea what they were they were going to bring, be coming up that was broken, and so we had just had boxes of parts underneath the table. And we're like, okay, well, hopefully we'll have the right part to to fix your yeah. thing. And we, I think we were there were a couple where we didn't know the right parts, and there were a couple we were able to successfully fix them. And Kyle's website is iFixit, which is like it's, oh, I call a little it website en- you might have heard of. Yeah, I, I call it engineer porn because <laughs> I, uh, I have a specific engineer in my life, a friend of mine who's um, every time someone in his family gets a new Mac, it's my brother-in-law. <laughs> and uh, every time someone in the family gets a new Mac, he goes to your website and looks at the ways to completely rip it apart. And and he looks at it right in front of people, which just scares the heck out of all of us. <laughs> and you're not coming over to my house to look at my Mac, no. I mean, there's, a, there's this famous story of my niece coming home and her computer's in like 12 pieces. And he says, no worry, I'll get it back together. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing wrong with it to begin with. He just took it apart. <laughs> did he get it back together? Yeah, yeah, he did fine, you know. I mean, the guy builds airplanes, so he can handle Macs. But the... um. Either way, it, it's it's a great site to go to. I've used it so often over the years. I mean, I had one of those old MacBook Pros when it was like really hard to put a hard drive in, and um, I think it was you guys rated it intermediate. And I looked at it like I was getting ready to um, to plan a global domination. I mean, I had the table laid out. I had the static mat. I, I mean, that was that's the most intense thing I've ever done, and. And I just followed every step on your thing, and I got it all back together, and I didn't even have any screws left over. So it seemed to work. I did a hard drive in a 12-inch power book with a stripped screw. That was a lot of fun. But, yeah, but, strip screws can be a bit of a challenge. But uh, hmm. if, you, if you're careful, you can usually avoid stripping screws. And then we've got a number of techniques on the site to help you if you do accidentally yeah. strip a screw. Yeah, and in addition to... Um, to showing everybody how to fix this stuff. They, they sell the tools and they, ha- I mean, it's just, it's just the place to go. If you have any problem with your Mac, it's always my first stop. Well, actually my first stop, if it's under warranty is the Apple store and I let them deal with it. But once it's, but it's only warranty-, warranty for 12 months, yeah. let's, let's keep our Macs around a lot longer than that. So yeah. Uh, yeah. For those who haven't checked out, I fix it. We have step-by-step instructions on how to disassemble and repair pretty much every product Apple has made since 1998. Uh, it's not just a Mac site. We have instructions for lots of other things too, but we got started with 
with Max. And uh, so that's sort of been our our historical focus. And so it's really comprehensive. It's also probably the largest online community of people exchanging knowledge, teaching each other how to fix things. So I'm going on, I fix the answers right now. And there's all sorts of questions about, I spilled liquid on my MacBook Pro 13 inch, or can I upgrade the memory on my MacBook Air? So uh, people are getting really solid, useful answers to lots of questions. And, and it's a, it's a great place to go to sort of hone your skills to compete with other, uh, Mac geeks to see who knows the most about fixing machines and help people out along the way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Kyle, uh, how did you get started with this stuff? You know, I got started because I had a iBook. Uh, it was the, the G3 clamshell iBook uh, back in the day. Everybody teased me and said it looked like a toilet seat, but I thought it was an awesome computer. I really liked having a handle on my laptop. Uh, and I, I tripped over the power cord. This was in the pre-MagSafe days. And so my power cord was loose, and if I held it just right, I could charge the laptop. And so I said, well, this seems like, I mean, it's a simple mechanical thing inside, and I, I happened to have a soldering gun. And so I figured, well, if I could just put a drop of solder on that connector, it would fix it. So I started looking at it to figure out how to take it apart, and it wasn't obvious. So I searched online for, you know, iBook repair manual. Because I knew Apple had repair manuals. Their, I knew their service depots had repair manuals, but I wasn't able to find anything online. Uh, and I learned after the fact that Apple uses legal threats to keep their service manuals offline. They don't want the public to have access to them because they don't want their computers to be fixable by normal folks. So yeah. uh, we decided we'd come along and start publishing manuals. And so we wrote six manuals. Uh, and the, the first manuals that we wrote, it was like for the G3 Pismo and the Wall Street, if you remember those machines. Yeah. Uh, Wall Street was a great machine. Uh, and so we wrote them, and, and initially I was thinking, well, gee, people are taking their laptop apart. They're going to need a printed repair manual. So the first six manuals we wrote, we laid out in InDesign, and we printed them, and we sold them for $15 each. I think it was costing me $13 each to print them, so we weren't really making any money off them. And they didn't sell at all. <laughs> it was a huge disappointment. So I said, well... If, if we're, you know, we already wrote them, they're not selling at all. We might as well give them away for free online. So we put them online and all the Mac sites picked it up immediately. And we had, I think, 10,000 hits the first weekend. We said, wow, maybe this is something that, that actually does have legs. Uh, yeah. So we never looked back. We never did a second print run of the manuals. We've been online only ever since. And we've just kept writing manuals and expanding. Yeah. And, you know, like the, the iPad makes it so easy. Now what I'm doing repair is to have you have these gorgeous pictures you guys take of every step and you just have the iPad out, you got the, the Mac, you flip it over and you, right. you get to business. Yeah. The iPads are fantastic. I think uh, tablets are the ideal platform for repair information. Uh, and we have a native iPad app where you can uh, download your manuals and you can even archive them offline. So uh, you've always got access to manuals. Like let's say you're working on your router or something. We have, we have instructions on how to repair Wi-Fi routers. You probably need to archive the manuals offline before you take apart your router. I didn't know you guys had an app. Yeah, our our app is great. It's got uh, well over 100,000 downloads. It's very, very popular. Hmm. All right, that's going in the show notes. Yeah. Already in. What so, a great idea. Kyle, do you have an engineering background, or did you just as a kid like to take stuff apart and, and figure, well, maybe there's something here? I mean, how did how did you get into the, the whole, or was it just this experience with your iBook and figure, okay, there's something here? I was always taking stuff apart as a kid. I always thought it was fun. My grandpa would go to the Goodwill and buy us old electronics and we'd take them apart. Uh, but my background is I'm a, I'm a software developer. I'm a programmer. So I wrote the software that runs iFixit and I, I helped uh, contribute on some of our apps. So uh, that's what I do. I, I'm, a, I'm a geek coder. But uh, 
in terms of taking things apart, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, we, we Apple gives us these devices, and they want us to think of them as a black box that's perfect and will never need maintenance, will never need service. And the fact of the matter is, you get an iPhone, the battery is going to wear out after a year or two, and you need to replace the battery. And that's something that everybody should be able to do with their phone is replace their battery. And so our, our goal is to make it as easy as possible for people to get in and do maintenance like that themselves. And it's not that easy to replace the battery on an iPhone. You guys make it a lot easier, but <laughs> Apple certainly doesn't. The, on the original iPhone and the 3Gs, it was a little more difficult. But on the iPhone 4, you, anybody could change the battery in an iPhone 4 or 4S in under five minutes. Really? Because yeah, it's got two screws on the bottom. Oh, that's yeah, right. it's just was- two screws on the bottom and it slides off and then you can get the battery. The trick is that Apple is using a security screw on the bottom. So you have to have the right screwdriver to get in. It's not the kind of screwdriver you can get at Radio Shack. That's so, that new pentalobe screw. Right, driver, that's the right? new pentalobe yeah. screw. And so when Apple released the iPhone with that screw, like there were no screwdrivers that existed that could take the iPhone apart. So uh, we worked with our, our friends uh, that uh, run tool factories, and they were able to turn out a new screwdriver fast for us. And so now we've sold thousands and thousands and thousands of pentalobe screwdrivers. And you can get them. I think it's, it's as low as $7 to get the screwdriver. You need to take apart your iPhone. So everybody that has an iPhone should have one of those screwdrivers. Yeah, definitely. I'll tell you the, the repair that I am I do not have the guts to do is I'd like to I've got a 256 gigabyte um SSD in my iMac and I'd like to double that and I just do not have the guts to do that. Oh, just pull out the suction cups. Yeah, that's what scares me, suction cups. You know the really? suction cups is actually the easiest part. It's it looks challenging. So if you haven't uh, for those of you that haven't looked at the inside of an iMac, a good iFix it, punch an iMac, and and uh, take a look at some of the manuals. But it's uh, the glass on the front goes edge to edge, so there's no room for any screws or retaining clips. So what Apple actually did was embedded magnets in the edge of the glass. And so you use the suction cups uh, to grab the glass, and you just lift it off, and it just lifts the magnets loose. Uh, and it's it's pretty easy to take apart. The hardest part of, of working on the iMacs is actually – when you put it back together, you got to make sure there's no dust on the glass before you put it back on. Yeah. So that, that's really the tricky thing is just getting it back together without any dust between the LCD and the glass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's one I just – I would screw up. <laughs> wait, till, sure. wait till it's out of warranty before you do it. Well, yeah. take it to one of the many independent service technicians. So one thing that's happening is Apple, as they have really clamped down on access to the service information, they've uh, put a stranglehold on the independent service shops. So it's very hard to start a, a service center if you don't have access to manufacturer service manuals. So yeah. I fix its manuals being out there have really uh, helped the independent service community. Uh, now there's you know it's easy to find people in a local mall that'll fix your iPhone for you. And most of those guys got started using iFixit manuals. So even if you aren't going to do a do-it-yourself repair, uh, iFixit being around still helps you by keep making the cost of these repairs reasonable because we're training thousands and thousands of independent service techs. That's got to make you feel good. Yeah, I mean, those are, these are guys, they're awesome. They're uh, dramatically helping the environment by, by fixing machines that might have gone in the trash otherwise. Uh, and they're great American jobs. You know, the manufacturing might be in China, but all the repair is here in the U.S. All right, well, it's probably a good point to take a quick break and talk about our first sponsor, 1Password. And David, you know, the, the Internet has been buzzing about this this 
hack um, that this uh, former Gizmodo is it former Gizmodo writer. I don't have the article in front of me. Um, was hacked. The hackers got a, a hold of his iCloud account. They got a hold of the Gizmodo Twitter account, which is what they were really after. But they kind of used him as a back end to get through it. But it was just this horrible tale of how when they it, it was just kind of a calamity of failures by getting access to his iCloud account and getting access to his email. They were then able to get access to so many other aspects of his life because so many other things will send you password resets to your email. So by able to get access to his iCloud account, they were able to then get access to his Google account, and they were then able to get access to anything in iCloud through, like, for example, the uh, find my iPhone and find my Mac feature, and they were able to erase his Mac, erase his iPhone, erase his iPad, and of course, where were the backups of his Mac and his iPhone and his iPad? You know, they were on his Mac, and the, you know, the story gets even worse that maybe he didn't have some backups for the last year or so of the data on his Mac. Just a nightmare situation of how bad things could get. And as the story is unfold, we we found out that. He had a seven-digit password that hadn't been changed in over a year, and it, it appears that the password was just brute force hacked. And this just goes to show you how important it is to have strong, secure passwords. And that iCloud password is an easy one to say, you know, this is one that I don't want to put into one password because it's one I've got to enter in all the time, and I've got to enter it in on my iPhone, and it's a real pain to go in there and get it because one password, because of the app sandboxing rule, can't autofill on my iPhone. But there's scary things that can happen if these accounts get compromised. These are some of your most important passwords and some of your most important data that this can link to. Boy, this is just a real big price to pay if you're not using strong, secure passwords. Yeah. And, you know, one of the the hangups on that is is coming up with a strong, secure password, which is one of the solutions that 1Password solves so elegantly. Yeah. In fact, they've got a, a new uh, another detailed blog post on their website, and if you aren't subscribed to the One Password blog, it's probably something that you should look at. That talks about what makes a good password, what makes a bad password, because you know the hackers out there, and, and this particular hack was done by a, a known hacking group that kind of does this professionally, for lack of a better word. They know the patterns. They know the things that people tell us to do about passwords. They know the things that people are likely to do with passwords. You know, it's not just using one, two, three, four password is, that makes it a bad password, but the patterns and just human and social engineering that make things bad passwords. So they've got a very extensive uh, post on their blog about what makes a good master password for your one password passwords. And then also how if there are specific passwords that you don't want to be completely random, but you know, passwords that you want to be secure, but you want to remember how to make good passwords for that as well. I just think one password is just a key piece of defending yourself on the new world. You know, we've got these computers and the internet and everything. If you don't have a, a reliable way to track and use these, these enhanced passwords, you're, you're just asking for it. And you know that you've got to change them frequently and all the things that you need to do to have good practices with security on your Mac and your iPhone and your iPad uh, they all come back to one password. It gives you all the tools and enables you to do it. And it's not just for you. It's for your family members as well. Um, right. Uh, because there's a lot of them that, that aren't even at the lowest level of security with this kind of stuff. And a big part of that is just the enabling element. How do they figure out how to do this? How do they figure out to come up with a password? How do they figure out how to remember where they fit? And 
boy, I, I've used this software for years and I've turned so many people uh, that are my family and friends onto it and they all just love it. Many of which are not geeks. And, uh, you know, so one, one password is a, is a great way to help avoid putting yourself in the exact same position as this poor Gizmodo author found himself in. Right. You can find more information about 1Password at their website, onepassword.com. It's available in the Mac App Store for $49.99. If you slide between the Mac and Windows platforms, you can get a Mac and Windows bundle on their website for $69.99. And for the iOS devices, to make sure that you're covered everywhere and have access to all of your passwords no matter where you are, they have a pro version for $14.99, which is hybrid and will work on both the iPad and the iPhone. Or you can buy individual license to either the iPad or the iPhone for $9.99 each in the App Store. And if you want to click on the link through our website, that will save you 20% off anything that you purchase directly through the Agile Bits store using that link. So thanks to 1Password for their continued support of the show. Yeah, please get it if you don't. Please. Yeah. Uh, so let's move on. Now, now, Kyle, in addition to teaching everyone how to fix this stuff, you do uh, an amazing and important service for all of us, which is when we're waiting in line for the latest and greatest thing, we get to see a picture of one taken apart before we even get our hands on it. Yeah, we call those teardowns, where we get a new gadget the day it comes out, and we take it apart, and we tell everybody what's inside and how it was made. Uh, yeah. And those are a lot of fun. Uh, that's a, so the events that we look forward to is, is a new Apple device. Uh, so we'll go wherever we have to go, wherever it's going to come out first, and take it apart. Uh, and then immediately start taking photos and post them online. And everybody asks me, oh, well, you get the new iPad. Did you turn it on first? And I say, no, that's crazy. We just, we're so eager to get inside, we don't usually turn them on first. Now, I always wonder what happens to those after the end of the, of, of the teardown photos. Do you get them all put back together and nice, neat, and pristine, and then there's your iPad? Uh, we <laughs> almost never break things that we take apart. We're very, very careful with the disassembly. Yeah. And now with, with the iPad 3, it's, it was a different story because it was such a challenging device to take apart. But in general, we put them back together and we use them. Yeah, but, I mean, mm -hmm. just logistically, I mean, when you think about it, so you're in line in California. Or Australia. Yeah. Well, they go to Australia. But I mean, I'm yeah. sitting in line in California. Yeah. It's already done. And it didn't occur to me until we talked what you have to do to get that. Because Apple's not going to send you one a few days in advance. Say, oh, here you go. I fix it so you can tear it apart. They, right. Apple you, doesn't send us review units. Yeah, I, I didn't think they would for some reason. And uh, <laughs> so you put somebody on a plane, and I think you said you flip a coin or something. How do you decide who gets to take the trip? Yeah, so Luke, uh, the guy who started I Fix It with me, uh, and I, we both uh, do the teardowns, uh, we'll sort of trade off. Um, the first time we realized we had to go overseas was when the iPhone 3G came out, uh, and it was a worldwide launch. Apple was making a big deal that the iPhone was finally worldwide. And New Zealand is about 15 hours ahead of the West Coast of the U.S., so, uh, so one of us had to fly to New Zealand, and, and we were like, shucks, who has to go to New Zealand? That sounds like an awful place to go. Yeah. <laughs> Slash, we had always wanted to go to New Zealand. Yeah. So Luke and I flipped a coin over who got to go to New Zealand, and I lost, and he won. So he was the first person. I think he was the second person in the world to buy an iPhone 3G and certainly the first person to take one apart. Yeah, definitely, wow. to take one apart. <laughs> so he goes in line in New Zealand. He gets it. What's he go back to a hotel room, or where do you guys – because the pictures are very good. Right. We've gotten fairly good at uh, mobile lighting setups. So uh, I should probably do a blog post sometime about the suitcase that we have that has all our lights in it. But uh, 
We, I mean, they're clamp lights. We use daylight fluorescent uh, bulbs. And uh, in the case of New Zealand, we just started calling some of our, our customers, the re- repair centers that were in New Zealand. And one of them had a shop that was right downtown, not very far from, it was a Vodafone store. When we did that one, there wasn't an Apple store in Auckland. Uh, and so they let us in. It was like, it was a midnight launch. So <laughs> they let us in at midnight and we were in their shop until 3 or 4 a.m. taking photos, taking it apart. And so Luke is, is in New Zealand taking it apart. And then our team of engineers is here in California. Uh, analyzing the photos and doing the technical analysis, writing, writing the teardown itself. So Luke does the photos in the field, and then we do the technical analysis at our lab in California. How many people do you have in, at iFixit? Well, so iFixit overall, I mean, we, we do all sorts of things. So we're, we're an e-commerce store, so we sell parts. Uh, so we sell screens and batteries and uh, screwdrivers to work on these things for Apple products and game consoles and a bunch of other electronics. Uh, and then we also have a software team that builds the website, and also we have a software company called Dazuki that makes service documentation software available to companies that want to publish their own repair manuals. So overall, at iFixit, we've got about 40 people doing all of that. Wow. I didn't realize how big you guys were. We, we've been around a while. We started uh, – the original manuals that we published were in, I think, 2003, uh, and we've been, we've been selling Apple parts online <laughs> for a long time. So we probably have more – uh, years of technical repair, Apple repair expertise, and how should I fix it? Then I would imagine any com- other company outside of Apple. A uh, lot of experience, a lot of uh, technical analysis goes into writing these repair manuals. I mean, we, we have to basically completely reverse engineer a product, learn everything that Apple knows about the product, uh, and you know try to find the best possible way. And on some manuals, we'll uh, take a part of the product five, six times. Uh, put it back together to try to find the absolute best, easiest way into the device to tell people. Uh, for example, we haven't published our iPad 3 repair manual yet because we've been working on trying to find a way to get into it that doesn't break the screen. As Apple glued the whole thing together, it's not designed to be serviced at all. So I've got a team of engineers that have been working on that problem nonstop since the iPad 3 came out. Uh, and I think we finally cracked it. I think we finally got a, me- a mechanism that's going to make it possible for people to get in and service the iPad 3. Have you ever heard from Apple? I mean, with all the stuff you're doing, do they give you any uh, contact at all? No, I, you know, we don't hear a lot from Apple, and that's fine. Uh, yeah. but the fact of the matter is Apple is a dramatically more environmentally friendly company because iFixit exists, because we're out there helping people uh, repair their products. So we make Apple better. Uh, Apple creates amazing products, and we're happy to uh, help uh, people keep their awesome Apple products working as long as possible. Now, there's, there's some stuff you do as well on that theme of recycling electronics. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you, what kind of Mac do you use? That's a great question. I have a 15-inch MacBook Pro. It is a uh, – let me, let me look at the exact model number. So it's a 2.4 gigahertz Intel Core i5. Um, unfortunately, Apple doesn't have very good ways of, of naming these things. So it's, it's model number A1226. So if you go on iFixit and you punch in A1226, it'll pull up our repair manual for this machine. So, so you didn't get to keep the new Retina one that caused so much controversy? Uh, you know, so, I mean, it caused so much controversy because when we took it apart, we broke it. Uh, it's not designed to be serviced. Uh, and as a matter of fact, on the Retina that we bought, we disassembled the screen because we wanted to do a teardown of the screen and show people how they assembled the Retina display itself. Uh, and so that was a destructive process because the, the screen is all glued together. There's no way, no way inside it. 
Um, but we're, we're still continuing to use that machine for lots of technical analysis. And you do your software development on the MacBook Pro? and Yes, absolutely. I've got that. I've got a, a, one of the cinema displays. And uh, then I spend most of my day in terminal. Uh, SSH then to a Linux server that is hosted on Amazon EC2. Yeah. So my, my tool of choice, my weapon of choice is Emacs. Okay. That's where I spend most of my days. Okay, so now you're a serious you know, nerd at that point when you're in yeah, Emacs. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Um, now, wow. what, and this is kind of just going back to the teardown. What is, can you just give us a brief summary of what your camera rig is? Because the, I'm just looking through these pictures on the website and they're all gorgeous. Sure. Well, one thing you might not know is it, on any of the image, if you hover over it, you get a little menu and then there's an image metadata page. Uh, because I fix it as a wiki. It's something anybody can contribute manuals to. And as a matter of fact, I fix it. Like we've only written about, I think, a third of the manuals that are on the website. Uh, the rest are all community generated. So we've got manuals for how to change the brakes in your car. If somebody posted a Dodge Caravan brake repair guide, but you know, I don't have a Dodge Caravan, so I couldn't have written that. Uh, yeah. so, so it's kind of fun when you see other people's photos. Kind of like, uh, just like on Flickr, you can see how they how they did their uh, photography. You just hit the image metadata link, and then it will take you to a page that lists the the resolution and the cameras and everything that we use. So on any of our teardowns, you can go and look and see what what camera rigs we're using and what the what the uh, you know lens settings and everything. But in general, we use uh, we have a number of Nikon D seven thousands which is a fantastic camera. Uh, we just got a Nikon D800 that we're using for some of the higher resolution shots because it's a 35 megapixel monster. Um, but most of the time, it's just a, a Nikon D7000, which is kind of a prosumer camera, but it's, it's phenomenal. It does great work. Uh, we do all of the videos. Um, uh, uh, we have a YouTube channel that has uh, some introduction to repair uh, videos, and we shoot all of those on a Nikon D7000 as well. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And they blow up so nicely. Yeah, I mean, the D7000 is, I think, 16 megapixels. Someone will correct me. It's, it's, it's in that, that ballpark. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's, you know, we'll use, uh, we'll use macro lenses sometimes uh, for some of the smaller shots. Over time, we have had to get a lot better at taking photos of smaller things. You take apart an iPod shuffle, and we're showing individual transistors on the board, and uh, you got to be zoomed in a fair ways. Right. Okay, I'd like to take a break for a minute and talk about our second sponsor, Pixelmator. Now, Pixelmator is the maker of very fine graphic software for the Mac. And that last part for the Mac is real important because this software is designed around the Mac operating system and it uses all that great stuff Apple's put into the graphics processing routines. Uh, it's customized for the Mac. It uses, for instance, the graphics processor to do a lot of the rendering as opposed to the central CPU, which makes it wicked smart and fast. I've been using Pixelmator now for years, since they first came out, because I didn't want to spend $700 on an app to make my pictures a little better. And I've never regretted it. This app just does the job. It plugs right into um, Aperture, which is my my photo processing app of choice. And I can round trip stuff into Pixelmator really easily. And I use all of the tools. I mean, it's got a, a really nice look and feel. It's got the tools on the left side. And then you can just go through and use, like you can burn and dodge. You can use the eyedropper to, to adjust colors or, or grab a color from another part of the screen. Um, most of the stuff I put in my books are screenshots that I will use and adjust in Pixelmator, um, as well as my own family photographs. We were at a family reunion yesterday. That's why we're recording today on a Sunday. And I got a ton of great pictures. And 
Um, however, I had to really crank up the ISO because we were indoor and I, I had my 50 millimeter lens on. I wanted to get some pictures. We had a 92 year old, uh, relative came from the Philippines to be there and I got some great pictures of him, but, um, they needed some adjustment and I'm already starting on that and it's all happening in Pixelmator. You can get into this app for just $14.99. It's amazing. It's stunning. And it's, it's everything you need. And you know they've already, they've been public. They've got a a new version coming out soon, and it's going to be version two point one. It's adding even more features. So, boy, now's the time. Just get into it. Uh, Fifteen bucks, and you've got all the high end photo uh, technique stuff you're going to need. And, and moreover, even if you've never used these things before, they've got a great tutorial at their site that's got videos and picture walkthroughs. So even if you don't know how to do this stuff, this is a great place to learn. And for fifteen dollars, how can you go wrong? So. Go over to pixelmator.com. Check out the website. You can buy the app uh, through the App Store. Let them know you heard about it from us, though, because they don't really know if you don't. And and go make awesome pictures. You know what I really... Uh, one thing that I got from your website that I never thought I would was a lot of knowledge about e-waste. And uh, you guys have really, in my world at least, you were the ones that really made me aware of this problem. I mean, I was always aware of it on the periphery, but... A lot of the content on your site is dedicated to this problem of what we do with these old computers and electronics when we're done with them and and the bad things that are happening with them around the world. And, and you even went out to some of these places, right? Yeah, I mean that's one thing people uh, – it's not obvious at all when you buy a computer that it's one of the most toxic things that we've ever manufactured as a, as a society. So uh, it's really critical that when computers are uh, done at their end of life that they're, responsible, uh, that they're recycled responsibly. Uh, and so we've gone uh, – a couple weeks ago I was at SEMS Recycling, one of the largest uh, e-waste recyclers. In, uh, actually, they are the largest in the world. They're one of the largest in the U.S. Uh, to see their facilities where they're shredding machines. Uh, but I've also been uh, on the other side where uh, in – uh, developing countries, they don't have formal recycling practices. And so if they have a pile of wires and they need to get the insulation off the wires so they can sell the copper, uh, they'll just burn the insulation off. And that's mm-hmm. an incredibly toxic, dangerous practice because then they're basically breathing in aerosolized plastic, which has polybrominated flame retardants and trace arsenic and uh, mercury in some of the circuit boards. So it's really a problem. Uh, and it's caused by a you know, globalization where we're manufacturing these amazing electronics and we're shipping them all over the world because there's a demand for the electronics all over the world, but there isn't as much of a demand uh, for recycling these things correctly. Yeah, I mean, it's not like with a car. You buy a car, you drive it for 15, 20 years. Right. I mean, but uh, now in the U.S., we're, we're consuming cell phones. On average, person in the U.S. goes through a cell phone every 18 months. So what what do we do as consumers about this? I mean – what do we do? There's a few things. The most important thing is to use the products we have as long as possible. So that doesn't necessarily need to be you using the product. Selling a computer on Craigslist or selling your old iPhone is fantastic because that gets it in the hands of somebody else while it's still relevant. There are a billion cell phones in the drawers and closets of Americans. If we could get those billion cell phones out of those drawers and into the hands of people that would use them, then we wouldn't need to manufacture nearly as many phones as we are. So that's priority number one is use the stuff that you've got as long as possible. Get somebody else to use it. And then if it breaks, fix it or get it in the hands of somebody who has an incentive to fix it. Sure. 
And then at the end of that life cycle, though, at the end of life, then you got to make sure that it's recycled correctly. And there's there's some options for that. There's if you buy something from Amazon, you'll get an envelope that has the cell phones for soldiers, where you can mail it in, and they use it for charity. Uh, you can take computers to Best Buy, and they'll recycle them. You can take uh, cell phones to an AT and T or a Verizon store, and they'll take them back. Uh, there are in most areas there are electronics recyclers. Uh, in the local area. So you can go to earth911.com and they, they have a electronics recycler search. So th- there are a lot of options. You can also oftentimes local uh, waste facilities, local dump has an electronics uh, recycle zone. What you don't want to do is throw an ele- uh, electronics in the trash. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at these pictures on your website and it seems to me it's just dreadful. You know, you see this, this, these huge piles of electronics sitting in the third world somewhere where somebody's got to deal with this. Right. And it wouldn't take that much work for all of us to, to, to avoid this problem. Right. Uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, even we're not going to be able to completely solve it in the U S we need to, uh, get better recycling facilities built. Like, uh, some of the photos you're seeing, I took in Ghana at an electronics, uh, scrapyard there and and you see the photos of them burning the electronics. But what you don't see is, is nearby there are, thousands of workers that are repairing electronics. Two-thirds of the uh, container imports into Ghana are used items, and they are amazing at fixing stuff. Uh, And so they'll take an old TV that you would have never thought was worth bothering to fix, and they'll replace an individual capacitor on the board and sell it for $10, and that was worth a day's work for them. So uh, that is a tremendously sustainable activity for uh, to be using these things as long as possible to get TVs and, and cell phones and laptops in the hands of more people. So one thing we've been working really hard at is getting iFixit manuals in the hands of technicians over there to make them better at their job and to train them on, on the more and more sophisticated technology that's coming out. Yeah. So that's an area where we need the expertise of, of everyone to help us build the largest repair manual the world has ever seen. And that's why iFixit is totally open. Anybody can contribute. So if you know how to fix a blender or an espresso machine or how to work on a car or maybe how to fix a Dell laptop that we don't have a service manual for. Uh, take photos along the way and contribute them to help us continue to build out the biggest repair resource the world's ever seen. You've been kind of critical in publicly, I think, of, of Apple. On one hand, they seem to be making some great strides with recyclability, but you mentioned you know, the newest, uh, David's current machine, so uh, the 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro, that in some steps, you know, they've, they've taken some steps backwards in recyclability in terms of these glued-in batteries and these screens that are glued into these machines, in, in these machines that are becoming less and less repairable. In your mind, is, is there a happy medium, or, or what is the suggestion or the path that you would like to see these things take? Obviously, consumers want you know the greatest and the fastest and the prettiest and the sleekest, and Apple wants to provide that, uh, but there's also a need to be environmentally friendly and, and aware of those types of things. Is there, a, is there a happy medium that can be met? Yeah, I think so. Uh, with, you know, it's interesting. If you think about buying a car, uh, I've historically been more uh, likely to buy a Honda uh, car over a Ford car because I have the perception that the uh, lifetime value of a Honda is going to be higher because they're easier to fix and they last longer. Uh, I think a lot of people kind of have that perception. There's some vehicles they're more likely to buy than others because they know that the resale value is going to be higher. Um, we've been a little bit disconnected from that with electronics because the turnover rate has been faster and so it hasn't been as clear whether one cell phone 
is going to have a higher resale value than another. But that's something I think if we look at, if you're thinking about buying a phone, just look and see the phone, you know, how did similar models perform on eBay? Because uh, that'll give you a really good perspective on uh, how repairable the device is. Um, so what we've been critical of Apple with, with the latest MacBook Pro is that they're, they're doing a few things that make it really hard for the product to last very long. Uh, they're building in a battery in a way that is incredibly expensive for independent service techs to replace. Uh, Apple has a mail-in battery replacement program for it that's a little under $200. Uh, but uh, when they do that, they're actually replacing the entire upper case of the computers. They're replacing the keyboard and the trackpad, the upper uh, metal case, and the battery. Uh, wow, I didn't know that. Internal Apple memos have uh, have shown that Apple service technicians aren't allowed to separate the battery from the upper case assembly. So for us, like for iFixit to be able to sell that battery assembly with the keyboard and trackpad and everything, it would be about a $600 part. So the only way that it's going to be economically viable to replace the battery is for Apple to do it. Uh, and Apple doesn't. Apple's probably losing money at $200 to replace all of that. So they don't really have an economic incentive to be providing that battery replacement program for very long. So this is a device Apple is trying to push us with buying our laptop buying pattern into the same pattern that we buy phones. A big part of why Apple is making so much money selling the iPhone is that everybody replaces their iPhone every 18 months. Yeah. And if they could get everybody to replace their Mac every 18 months, then maybe their Mac business would start making as much money as their phone business is. So uh, th- I think we really need to push back on that kind of design. Batteries are something that wear out. It's just like the tires on a car. You need to be able to replace the tires on a car. You're not going to throw away an entire car because the battery, or I'm sorry, because the, the tires wore out. And it's the same thing with the battery on the MacBook Pro. Now, you also had made, um, I believe, comments concerning the recyclability in general of the new Retina MacBook Pro. And I believe that involves the screen as well and some other Yeah, pieces. there are some concerns. There's, uh, when you're recycling, you need to be able to separate out different types of materials. You need to separate plastics from metals. You need to be able to separate out any elements that have mercury in them. You need to be able to separate circuit boards from metals because the circuit boards have to- toxic materials in it. Uh, the WEE directive uh, in Europe uh, marks as toxic waste that needs to be handled differently. Any circuit board that is larger than 10 square centimeters. And there are uh, four or five circuit boards in the MacBook Retina that are larger than that. Uh, also, the battery needs to be removed at recycling time because the recyclers run everything through a shredder. You can't run a lithium-ion battery through a shredder because they tend to explode when you do that. Yeah. So if we don't want to be uh, maiming the the recyclers that are, are doing the good work of, of getting this stuff back into the material stream, we need to make it easy for them to separate out the product. Uh, and if you've never been in one of these recycling facilities, they're massive and they have a huge conveyor belt. The computers are going down the conveyor belt and they pull it off. They pull out the, the toxic or hazardous components like batteries and then they put the rest of it back on the assembly line. And the amount of time it takes them to disassemble the product goes directly to their bottom line. So with these difficult to disassemble, uh, very difficult to separate batteries on the Retina MacBook Pro, it's going to make the recyclers much less profitable which means they're going to have less of an incentive to recycle. It means it's going to be harder for new recyclers to get into the business. Yeah. Uh, and overall, it's just going to create an economic disincentive for people to be recycling these electronics. So as an owner of a written at MacBook Pro, whenever this computer reaches the end of life for me, what I'm hearing from that is I need to make sure I get it back to Apple 
for them to incur the cost of recycling it. That yes, I think that makes sense. Um, I mean, that's probably the only thing I right. can do. Or get it into the hands of somebody else who's going to use it for a couple well, that, more I mean, years because you, you turn them over pretty quick. Well, yeah, I have a lot of kids, and you know, we we share electronics. But at some point, for instance, we have right now a I believe it's a two thousand five white MacBook that's at the end of life, and it's you know I. Nobody in my family is going to use it anymore, and I'm deciding whether I'm going to sell it on Craigslist or what I'm going to do with it. But for instance, if I if this once this Retina MacBook Pro gets to that spot, right. I need to to get it back to Apple, right? Because if I give it to somebody to else, to they're going to throw it away, and right. that's going to cause a bunch of trouble, right? Yeah, you're, you're going to need to replace the battery probably three or four times in between now and then too. Yeah, so that's that's the other part of that. Yeah. Okay. I'll get four keyboards is what you're telling me out of this. <laughs> yeah, you should get the you pull the keys off before you send it to them and then use them to make a art display. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And our last sponsor for today is Gazelle. And that could not be more an appropriate sponsor for the show than Gazelle. Because Gazelle will buy your old gadgets, your old MacBook, your old iPad, your old iPhone. And they will turn around and get that product in the hand of someone who's actually going to use it and going to get less of this techno waste uh, where it doesn't belong and make sure that these gadgets have nice, long, happy lives. If you're done using with it, uh, Gazelle will find someone else who can make sure that your gadget is put to good use. Hey, you know, when uh, Kyle was talking about people who have stacks of old electronics in a drawer, that is not me because I, uh, I do recycle to my family members, but I also send them into Gazelle because that's that's cash baby you know that's money and uh it's great like when the new iphone comes out there's no doubt that i will end up getting one because i'm that kind of nerd and you know we'll do the shuffle in the house and there'll be an extra iphone at the end of that chain and i will send it into gazelle i will get money for it and it'll probably pay for my apple care or or just help pay the sell bill and so why do I want to keep these things around when I can I can convert them to cash and put them back into circulation? Yep. So here's what you do. You go to gazelle.com. That's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com. And you tell them what you've got. Do you have an iPhone? Do you have an iPad? Do you have a MacBook? Do you have a MacBook Air? Do you have an iPad 2? You know, be very specific. Tell them what you have, what size it is. And then tell them about the condition. Is it in excellent condition? Is it in good condition? Is it in fair condition? And they'll give you some criteria to tell you what is what. And then they'll give you an offer for it. Oh, you also got to tell them, do you have the accessories? Do you have the cables? What all? And then they'll give you a price. You ship your item off to Gazelle. If you need a box, they'll send you a box for it. And then when your item gets to Gazelle, they'll tell you if they agree with your evaluation. If it's worth more, Gazelle will actually give you more. If it's worth less, they'll actually tell you, hey, it's worth less. But either way, whether it's worth more, whether it's worth less, Gazelle will say, hey, we think your item's worth more. We think it's worth less. What do you want us to do? Do you want us to send it back to you? Do you want us to go ahead and give you the difference? Let us know. So Gazelle will lock in your quote for 30 days and then pay the shipping so you can get the item to them. And then they'll send you a check or they'll send you PayPal. Or if you want a 5% bonus, they'll even send you an Amazon gift card and you can get 5% more. So go to Gazelle and check it out. Or first, go through all of your drawers and see what you've got. Go to Gazelle, see if they'll take it and see what they do. And here's the thing. If you've got a broken iPhone and you don't want to fix it yourself because maybe some of that looks a little intimidating, they will even take your broken gadgets because they'll fix it and then put it in the hands of someone who can use it. So Gazelle is very environmentally responsible with everything that they're doing. 
Yeah, it's a great service. I for years I tried to do the whole Craigslist, you know, tango. I'm so done with that. Now when I have electronic devices, I call Gazelle, get a good price with a minimum amount of my time and uh and you know, you get the box in the mail, you send it back, you get some money. What else could you ask for? See, Apple's point too, frankly, because these light computers that are thinner and you know, it, it is nice. It is really a nice computer. I, I love this Retina display. I well, we, I, I would argue, and I spend a lot of time with industrial designers, you can design products that are thin and also repairable uh, or easy to recycle. The Nexus 7 we took apart a couple weeks ago, uh, Google's new tablet, yeah. and it is super easy to disassemble. The, the battery comes right out. There's just one connector on it. Uh, you can replace the battery in it in probably two minutes. So, And it's only a millimeter thicker than the iPad 3, which is... Uh, so it's a incredible form factor. Uh, it's it's a you know gorgeous device. I think it's it's just uh, I think it's up there with Apple's quality standards, and they made it very easy to work on. So yeah. uh, we've seen other products like with the iPod Touch. Uh, this the uh, Microsoft Zune HD. Now it didn't uh, perform very well in the marketplace, but it was just as thin as an iPod Touch, and it was very easy to get in and work on. Where the iPod Touch is glued together and very challenging to get at. So designers absolutely can meet the challenge and create devices that we uh, want to have and also are easy to uh, re- recycle and get sustainable. Uh, the, the designers just have to have that as a, as a priority. And so that's up to us to be telling Apple that we care about recyclable, repairable products and that we're, we're willing to uh, you know, influence them and, and speak up. We got to speak our minds or Apple will just continue to glue these things together. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, where this is going, by the way, we've already seen sort of a signal of the future, is the iPod Shuffle. Apple has a battery replacement program for the iPods because they were required to by a legal settlement. There was a lawsuit several years back. So they have to provide a battery replacement program for iPods. Uh, they don't really want to, and they just certainly don't want people replacing batteries in iPods. They'd much rather have people just buy a new iPod. Uh, and so the iPod Shuffle's battery replacement program for the $59 iPod Shuffle is $59 plus $6.95 shipping and handling. <laughs> and I can tell you, having taken those apart, it's not really possible to replace the battery in an iPod Shuffle. It's a throwaway device. It's designed to last for 400 charge cycles. So that's 400 charge discharge. And then the battery uh, is diminished and you're at a point where you say, well, I just need to get a new one. So this has made Apple a lot of money. So are they actually replacing the batteries on those, or are they just no, recycling them and sending recycling you a new one? No, I sending you a new iPod, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is, if you look at the uh, manufacturing cost of making these things, it's tremendous. If you go to apple.com slash environment, they have their uh, breakdown of where Apple's environmental impact is, and it's overwhelmingly on the manufacturing side in China where we don't see. You know, they talk about the, the brick manufacturing process where they're taking a big solid block of pure refined aluminum and then machining it out to make the case. There's a lot of waste in that. There's a lot of waste in manufacturing sure. silicon. Uh, I'm told that to manufacture a laptop takes something like 40,000 pounds of raw virgin material and water to make a three pound laptop. So yeah. the we're completely disconnected from the impact of making these things. And there is a huge permanent environmental impact in making 1.6 billion cell phones. Uh, and if we're going to be doing that year in, year out, we really need to have a plan in place for making sure that 30 years from now we can still manufacture 1.6 billion new cell phones or 7 billion, if that's however many it is at that point. Uh, and the manufacturers 
Apple appears to be transparent on the surface, but there's a lot that we don't know about their manufacturing supply chain that they're being very secretive of. Yeah, now is, is Apple worse than others, or is this just a problem throughout the industry? I think this is a problem throughout the industry. I, you know, I, I focus on Apple just because I've been a Mac guy from day one, so yeah. uh, that's where we focused. But um, every manufacturer has this problem. Manufacturing electronics and semiconductors is incredibly toxic, uh, and we're doing our. The industry is making progress toward getting toxics out, and Apple has been leading the way. I think the iPhone is probably, in terms of toxics that you could be exposed to during use of the product, uh, probably one of the best cell phones out there. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't – at the manufacturing side, when you're making the chips, everybody's buying the same chips. And, and there's a tremendous amount of fresh water that's uh, polluted in the process of semiconductor manufacturing. There's things like Colton that uh, – I think 95% of the world's supply of Colton comes from Democratic Republic of Congo – where it's a conflict mineral that is uh, funding the ongoing civil war there. So we're a long way from a responsible, safe, green cell phone. Yeah. Is there a solution now? I mean, to make this stuff, is there a better way? You know, we just have to keep chipping away at it. There's a lot of uh, things that are going to be required to build a a green electronics industry. We're going to need electronics recycling in every country in the world that's responsible. We're going to need better environmental laws. We need China stepping up and enforcing some of their uh, environmental laws better. Uh, we need manufacturers designing products that will last for 10 or 20 years and have a parts and repair supply chain along the way. Uh, so there's a lot of elements that uh, can go in there. We, we need to get hundreds of thousands of new electronics repair businesses started uh, to make the cost of repairing these less expensive. So all of those things are very accomplishable, and we've been doing everything that we can to advocate toward those and, and make things happen. We've seen progress in other industries. Uh, in Massachusetts, they just uh, uh, passed a right-to-repair law that makes service documentation for automobiles available to independent service shops. And I think we need similar legislation for electronics so that you know the world shouldn't be reliant on me to reverse engineer an Apple laptop and figure out how to fix it. That should be information that Apple is providing to service technicians. Yeah. Well, well Kyle, I'm, I'm uh, impressed with everything you've done and uh, I'm a fan of, of I fix it and everything you guys stand for. So I hope well, thank that you. this makes a and difference. Absolutely. And I mean, the immediate takeaway, and this is not to make everybody feel guilty about their electronics. Like electronics are absolutely critical to productivity and to the future of society. We just need to find a way to make them uh, uh, more sustainable and to reduce the impact. And the easiest thing to do is just to fix stuff when it breaks. So when your computer breaks or when your battery wears out, just make sure that either you replace it or you get in the hands of somebody that will replace it. And Apple makes absolutely phenomenal, very high-quality devices. Uh, and if they're maintained correctly, there's no reason they shouldn't last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, I still know people that have Apple IIs that are functioning perfectly. Uh, in fact, I know somebody that hooked his Apple II up to Twitter the other day. So, That's kind of awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. It's super awesome. And yeah. I don't see why in 20 years somebody shouldn't be using your Retina MacBook Pro to do amazing things. I mean, it can do video editing today. There's no reason it won't be able to do video editing 20 years from now. And as users, it seems to me that's the place where we can really make a difference is at the tail end of our products. Is where, you know We have the choice over where they go when we're done with them and be responsible about that. Right. Absolutely. Okay. And that's something we can do. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, and we've made it as easy as possible on iFixit. So we have step-by-step -step repair guides for thousands of products. 
Uh, we have uh, all the tools and parts that you need for Apple products. So if you like, on one thing I didn't mention on my MacBook Pro is I, I, re, I re, removed the optical drive and replaced it with an SSD. So I have a 750 gig hard drive and a 80 gigabyte SSD. Yeah. So your boot up is the fast SSD, right? And then your big data store is on a hard drive. Yeah. And so that's something that we sell as an optical drive enclosure that replaces your optical drive, and, and you can put your hard drive in. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, you know, I have not missed the DVD drive at all. But I have certainly enjoyed the benefits of having an SSD. Yeah, it's pretty nice rolling with two hard drives in there. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find more about what you do? Do you blog? Do you Twitter? Where can we send people to learn more about this? Absolutely. So uh, iFixit is on Twitter, uh, at iFixit. I am Kweens, K-W-I-E-N-S, on Twitter. Uh, but... Go to ifixit.com, look up the repair manual for your machine. Even if you don't have anything broken right now, take a look at the manual and see what's involved in fixing it and fixing your phone or your iPad or your, your MacBook Pro. Uh, maybe contribute to answers. We, that we have new questions coming in every day, uh, and we're always looking for more experts to teach people how to fix things because uh, there's, there's new folks coming in all the time that have no repair experience. And... Uh, you know, pitch in sometime. If you take something apart we don't have a manual for, take a photo and post it, and that can be the seed of a new repair manual. Sounds good. Excellent. Thanks for everything at iFixit. I'm going to continue to go there, although I'm very nervous about my brother-in-law and iFixit. <laughs> Worried. In fact, I'm but not going to let the him. Brother-in-law. I think the the, chal- the the retina MacBook Pro would be like the forbidden fruit to him. I'm going to make sure he's never near it long enough to get inside it. <laughs> Just check his pockets for screwdrivers when he comes <laughs> exactly. over. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Kyle, for coming in. And uh, hopefully I'll see you again at Macworld next year. Absolutely. We'll be at Macworld teaching more repair classes. Excellent. All right. See you then. Okay. Cheers. All right. Well, that is going to wrap us up uh, with episode 97. We've got just a few more left before we tick down to 100. So we, we hope that as many of you as possible can join us. So mark it on your calendar, August 25th, 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, um, whatever that ends up being in, in your time zone. And, and we hope that you will join us. And uh, I guess let's, let's talk about how people can contact us if they so desire. You can always go to the website. It's MacPowerUsers.com or find us at 5x5 on 5x5.tv slash MPU. Yep. You can find links to everything that we've talked about in the show notes. That's at uh, those websites that David mentioned. Or you can email us at feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And we're also on Twitter. It's MacPowerUsers. And uh, Katie's at Katie Floyd. I'm at Max Sparky. Yep. Uh, and we love those iTunes comments. Thank you to everyone who has posted those. Thanks to our sponsors, 1Password, Pixelmator, and Gazelle. You know, I'd also recommend, uh, if you listen to the show and you enjoy it, go subscribe to Katie's and my blogs. Uh, Katie's is at, I'm sorry, katiefloyd.me, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, David is maxsparky.com. Yeah, you know, because a lot of times both of us post articles that, that arise out of things that come up on the show, and it's, it's really great supplemental content. So go check that out if you haven't. Yeah. And uh, what's next? You know, I'm not sure what's next. We've got a couple things kind of cooking and some really great guests lined up, but we're not sure which one's going to be next because I'm going on vacation and we got a schedule around that. <laughs> so uh, you're going to get a surprise next week. How's that? Our surprise is the best thing anyway. Surprises are wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, but we know we got what we got going for show 100, so that's a lock. All right. So we'll see you all, all right. next week. And, uh, and think about the stuff we talked about today. I think this was a really good show for me, uh, as well as hopefully the listeners. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. 